tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Environmental Protection Agency has finalized a Red Hill work plan referred to as a order and consent and is to hold a webinar next week to discuss the document. EPA Region 9 Director Amy Miller was on hand for last night's open house at Mwanalu High School and will attend tonight's public meeting in person. Both come in advance of next week's meeting on the work order. Miller says more than 1,700 people weighed in on the work order expressing concerns over the fuel spill and the forever chemicals, or PFAS, from toxic firefighting foam known as AFFF. We received a lot of comments concerning putting in a defueling deadline. So we changed our order to include a deadline, and what that is is that we're requiring the Navy and DLA, Defense Logistics Agency, to put within their defueling plan 2.0 a, a specific deadline for defueling, and that plan needs to be approved by EPA. And how different is that since the Navy has come up with this accelerated timeline of October? So that accelerated plan of October has been something that we've been in discussions with, with the Department of Health, with the Navy, about moving moving up the deadline. And what, what we're requiring is that it was included in this defueling plan 2.0 and that it would require EPA approval and become part of the order. Anything else that's different? Yes. Another significant change that we made is we heard loud and clear from the community that they wanted more of a voice in the decision-making of the actions as we move forward. And so as part of this order, we are developing what we call a community representation initiative. And what this is, is the community will elect 10 members to be part of this group. And this group will meet monthly with the Navy Defense Logistics Agency Joint Task Force and EPA. EPA will help facilitate the development of this group, but it's the community that will decide who are members and what are the rules for for this group. And they will be able to engage with the decision makers as we move forward with defueling and closure and also protecting the drinking water system. We want to get the information out about all of the changes that we're making to the consent order. So next week on June 13th, we will have a webinar to help explain what is in our final consent order and how we responded to comments. So we have a document where we have taken the 1,700 comments and put them into categories and have responses. So not everything is in the consent order. Some of, some of our, our responses were dealt with outside of the uh, consent order through other mechanisms. The military is also planning a series of drills. How involved are the regulators in those drills just to make sure that all goes well? We have a staff person uh, place-based out here who focuses on emergency response and spill uh, prevention, and he will be participating in drills and routinely visiting uh, the facility and ensuring that, that there are preventative measures in place to avoid spills. Anything else that you want to underscore to the public, you know, as this plays out over the the next six months? Um, There were many comments concerning PFAS or um, the uh, uh, aqueous foam fighting uh, AFF. AFFF, yes. And there were a lot of concerns about that. And this consent order specifically focuses on defueling closure and drinking water. We have a previous order, the 2015 order on consent with DOH and the Navy. And that order, along with another agreement we have with the Navy about cleanup under our Superfund law, will address remediation of PFAS in the groundwater. In addition, we did ask the Navy to sample the drinking water supply along with the inactive wells to to find out how much PFAS is in in those wells. And lastly, I just want to say we are still doing our own investigation from the November spill, and we plan to have a report out later this summer. And then as far as concern over traces of PFAS that have turned up in other wells, I believe there's one at Kipapa Gulch in a private water well, a water well system. Um, I don't know. Uh, What do we do about cleaning those things up? 
PFAS is a national problem, and EPA is, is working on setting maximum contaminant level for what is an appropriate level. Uh, for drinking water. In addition, we are setting levels for cleanup. We are going to be working with our state partners like the Department of Health to ensure that we are addressing those concerns. And I know that already the city and county is looking at uh, landfills and what they can do to deal with the PFAS that might turn up over there. There's so many different sources of of PFAS that we're learning uh, about, um, and we look forward to sharing that information with our colleagues at the state, and we will continue to lean in um, as this is an emerging national issue. Any other new rules that will be coming down? In regard to PFAS? The, the big one that we're all looking to is the drinking water maximum contaminant level. In addition, the level for cleanup, for, which will impact many sites that may have contamination. And then are you folks doing anything with PFAS or uh, any other contaminants in places like Guam? Yes. In Guam, we work closely with Guam EPA, and there has been some concerns around PFAS in drinking water, and so we've been working closely with them concerning treatment and alternatives for drinking water sources. I am sure for all islands, we're going to have to really look at treatment options because obviously islands have sole source aquifers and often are, are limited in what choices they have. And so, you know, EPA is working in our Office of Research and Development to come up with solutions. Anything else just in regard to any of the other comments that the public submitted? I just want to thank the public for the uh, tremendous amount of comments. We've spent a lot of time trying to thoughtfully answer all of the questions that were raised to us. And I I just want to let the public know that we had two staff review every single comment. It's the most comments I've ever seen on a consent order that we've issued. Anything else on the reuse? So we are waiting to see the results of the survey. One of the requirements under the consent order is we do have to approve the the closure plan. And the closure plan under the consent order needs to meet uh, Hawaii state laws concerning underground storage tanks and closure of them. So we're going to be working very closely with the Department of Health and making sure that those regulatory requirements are met. That was EPA's Amy Miller talking about the Red Hill work plan. Joining the EPA, State Health Department, and military at last night's meeting were some of the Navy's biggest critics, the Sierra Club of Hawaii and Oahu Water Protectors. The groups began making a 250-foot tea leaf lay, a symbol of their fight to protect our water resources. It will be on a, a display at Thomas Square later this year on a holiday marking Sovereignty Restoration Day in Hawaii. Retired Army Colonel Ann Wright has been a vocal critic about holding the military accountable for its actions. She's encouraged that the Joint Task Force Red Hill is taking steps to do what she believes is right. Wright says she was surprised to learn that only about 170 people have sought help with the health clinic that the military has finally set up to address concerns by civilian families whose drinking water was contaminated by the fuel because they are hooked up to the military's water system. Wright hopes families taking uh, families take advantage of the resource, even though she acknowledges that trust may be a concern. Uh, they wanted to emphasize that civilians that have been affected by the toxic uh, uh, fuel spill are welcome to come to that clinic. And they've only had like 170 people that have come there, which is an indication that people really don't trust <laughs> trust Tripler. And even though this group, the Defense Health Agency, says we're not really Tripler, although they do use Tripler doctors. But to, ma- to emphasize that civilians can at least go and see what type of treatment uh, they might be able to get there. I think it's it's worth us publicizing that. For the families that are in the housing that's on the water system, right, they're kind of stuck because they've already, what, paid their rent and maybe can't find another place to live. Indeed, they are stuck. And, you know, we do a, a water drop uh, over at Capalina Homes uh, once a month to try to help out because we know a lot of people are still buying their own water because they don't trust the, the Navy's water system, even though the Navy tests it and says it's clean. But... You know, after the experience that people have had, they, they, a lot of people are still buying their own water. And so you folks are just doing that just as a community service? As a community service, yeah, uh, collecting from various places and 
organizations donate. Uh, it's the third Saturday of every month that we take water out to Capalina Village homes. What else are you most interested in as the defueling schedule has now been made public? What are you most worried about? Well, I'm most worried that uh, there will be another catastrophe, that uh, something will go wrong, because that seems to be the name of the game with Red Hills. Everything seems to go wrong. So I sure hope they are double-checking everything twice, that they've, they're, they're exercising on potential problems that may occur, uh, and they've got trained people that are ready to counter anything that happens, because the probabilities, I think, are high, because it's such an old, old thing, 80 years old, even though they've done millions of dollars in repairs uh, to it, the, the potential for something catastrophic to happen is there. So we're counting on the Navy and the military to be much better prepared than they ever have been before. The, the leaks that we've had before didn't happen because of earthquakes or anything like that. It happened because of human error. It happened because some guy ran a, a truck into a little uh, a pipe that had some fuel that nobody knew was there left over from six months before. The PFAS blowing up happened because somebody didn't attach a valve. So this is all human error that caused the, the two most recent catastrophes that we've had. So we're hoping that human error is eliminated in this next phase because that's the most probable thing. It's human error that gets something really screwed up and then everybody's trying to fix it. Any thoughts about what they should do with the tanks afterwards? Well, there's a variety of opinions in the community. Some people say fill those suckers up so we'll make sure nothing is ever done with them. I myself uh, lean toward, you know, they are an engineering marvel. And kind of like Hoover Dam, you know, and the, the numbers of tourists that go in to see Hoover Dam, I think that would be a very interesting thing to add to the to what people can see here. The Navy says that they are going to cut the pipes. There will not be any piping left. So I think that is kind of the first guarantee that they're not going to reuse them. Although, if push comes to shove, and if Department of Defense raises some national security thing, as easily as they can take three and a half miles of piping down, they can certainly put it back in. So I think we're all very nervous about that. And, you know, at this point, Secretary of Defense Austin still has not given the final okay to close that down. That was a requirement that was put in the National Defense Authorization Act uh, that he has to give another okay, and that still has not come. And again, the agencies are inviting the public to come out to the meetings to ask questions of stakeholders. The, this afternoon's Joint Task Force a Red Hill meeting will be at the Mornalua High School's auditorium from 1 to 5 p.m. Next week's EPA webinar will be on June 13th. Look for links on our website later today. You're listening to The Conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're remembering an artist who's considered a significant individual contributor to Hawaiian art in the 20th century. Born in South Africa in 1889 and trained in France, she studied under the influential William Adolphe Bouguereau. She married her husband in 1915 after he was being uh, after he was badly wounded during uh, World War One. He moved his young family to Samoa in 1917. A few years later, the family stopped over in Honolulu en route to England, and prompt, she promptly fell in love with Hawaii and moved permanently to the islands in 1923. She created hundreds of works of art during the next five decades, becoming one of the first artists to win international renown for her paintings of Hawaiian people and local subject matter. You can see her work in the public collections at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, the Hawaii State Art Museum, and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. 
For today's backyard quiz, we're looking for that artist's name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HP or tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. In this economy, running a small flower business may be all roses, but it's not all easy. That same rose that I used to buy, within like a year, it's doubled in price. I'm Rima Hreis, the lives of immigrant women entrepreneurs. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Lots of eyebrows are being raised over a proposal by the Honolulu Salary Commission to give top city officials a raise of more than 60 percent, 64 percent to be exact. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us to talk about this controversy. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So, as you said, the Honolulu Salary Commission proposed increases to salaries for elected officials and certain appointment department heads to take effect in July. So council members are seeing the 64 percent salary increase, and it would be their first raise in about 10 years. While the commission held public hearings earlier this year, there have been no public hearings or vote at the council level. And that's been a cause for contention, right? And it's always political when lawmakers have to vote on their own salaries. And that's why the Salary Commission can propose the increase and it can take effect without a vote. So there's some council members who haven't said anything at all. There have been some that said the increase is good, while others are fully against it. And one of those is council member Augie Tolba. And he's arguing that the council isn't informing the public. And people realize, wow, 64 percent? How did they get to that number? You know, so... Um, that's the reason why we're at where we're at is because a lot of things that go on here, you know, is when people are working and not paying attention. That's why I felt like, you know, I needed to be as transparent as possible. And, uh, as I'm learning, I want to make sure that the people learn. I think one of the things that we fail to do is really informing, um, the public, you know, if I had not said anything, this thing probably would have gone through and it would be it would probably be like, you know, politics as usual. Um, but, you know, I hear the concerns of the people in my community. I read their emails, uh, I take their phone calls and a lot of people are just upset. And I think, you know, majority of people do believe that we need a raise, but like um, that 64 percent just too much. So connected to the salary discussion has been a debate on whether the city council is a full or part-time gig. And Vice Chair Esther Kia'aina says the job is all-encompassing. She and Chair Tommy Waters introduced Bill 33, which would limit members from holding outside employment. And there's a separate resolution that proposes the same change, but as a charter amendment for the 2024 ballot, which would let residents decide. And this is up for discussion on Wednesday. But the city charter doesn't define whether the council is full or part-time. And this bill and resolution would essentially make them exclusive full-time lawmakers, which Kia Aina suggests is already the case. Most people uh, look at the calendar and see uh, one month for the city council meeting and one week of um, the committee hearings, but they don't realize that that's not all that there is. There's preparation for that. For example, now from January to June, it's chaotic. 
because we have the budget, right? The budget hearings, and that's uh, special budget hearings on top of the nor- normal, no- normal monthly hearings. We also currently have a permitted interaction group on real property taxes. Uh, so when you when you combine all of that, I just don't know when there's a week that I don't uh, I'm not busy preparing for something. If uh, you are not busy, then you're not doing your job because uh, being a city council member is not just being present for city council meetings and for hearings. It's being present to uh, find out the needs and concerns of your communities and working with the administration on addressing uh, some of them. Right. So for me, it's an all-encompassing job. It's, um, again, it's not something that I was, uh, uh, you know, expecting. Uh, With regard to the recommendations, of course, of the Salary Commission. And neighborhood boards have been submitting letters and resolutions opposing the salary increase and calling for a public hearing. Uh, Kaimuki Board Chair Lori Yamada led some of the efforts in writing up this resolution. And she says the resolution was a collaborative effort with other neighborhood board chairs across the island who are concerned about the raises. I just hope a special meeting is called so that the community, as well as the council members, at least they could have their say what they want about their raises. You know, since it is odd, I can see what Tommy said about, well, it's sort of weird that you're voting for your raises. But there's some of some of the members who think it's sort of, you know, weird. Why don't we have an open discussion at a council meeting and discuss this issue and have their thoughts in it, you know? So the council will meet tomorrow, and they'll be talking about the full versus part-time bill. But there are some council members who want to pull for a special meeting to vote on the salaries before July. You know, I can see how, uh, yeah, having a a side job, you know, could present uh, conflicts. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and you wonder, okay, will Augie Tobel hang up? comedy, you know, <laughs> while he's on the council. Uh, so, you know, just interesting questions that are being raised about this. And I think it's interesting if you look at our state lawmakers, their part-time lawmakers. And what we're always talking about is it's great that they have that outside experience. They know what it's like to be a resident full-time as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So uh, it'll be a lively discussion, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking with HPR Sabrina Bowden about the controversial salary hikes that the council will talk about tomorrow. Look for the story on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. today's reality check, we're taking a look at a group of Maui condo owners who are fighting Mother Nature. One of the Civil Beat reporter, Marina Riker, joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. You know, this whole thing about coastal erosion, you know, it's startling as we see, uh, you know, across the state with these rising seas are affecting uh, people's homes. And I recall video of some coconut trees uh, falling into the water. I mean, this is that same part of the island there on Maui. Yeah, so West West Maui has been hit really hard by coastal erosion, just in part because a lot of the buildings were built decades ago, and they were simply built too close to the ocean. Um, so when you add erosion and sea level rise, now we're facing kind of an existential crisis. And so, gosh, what are these condo owners trying to do? specifically in Kahana, there's a group of condominium owners who are actually trying to convince the county to allow them to tax themselves to pay to shore up the beach and build groins or kind of rock wall structures into the ocean to try to hold sand in place. They hope that this will last a while, um, but it's hard to say and even their consultant during a council meeting yesterday said he couldn't get, he didn't know the exact time frame just because sea level rise could change more rapidly than we thought there could be other events like storms so it's really really kind of an attempt to buy time in in these situations 
And so, I mean, how much are they going to need to kind of protect these condos? So they're asking for up to $40 million. But the the kind of interesting thing, and this is why this is new here, um, is previously, for example, like in Kaanapali, which is very close to there where resorts also tried to convince the government to allow them to bring back sand to restore their beach. They had actually offered to front some of their own money and then partner with the state to do that. The state actually shot that agreement down, so now they're having to scrap that plan and figure out something else. But in Kahana, the the condo owners are actually saying that, hey, we're going to tax ourselves, but then the county would actually take this over. Um, And that's actually a big concern for a lot of residents and some of the council members themselves is that does the county all of a sudden have all of this liability when it comes with kind of battling this issue that we know is inevitable and then the county might be on the hook for paying to maintain or dealing with these structures out in the ocean and then there's another question about well what happens if buildings themselves which in some cases are decades old crumble before the property owners taxes actually are able to pay back any bonds that the county would take out to pay for that so basically there's just a lot of unanswered questions at this point and, you know, the question of managed retreat is something that's hanging over us. And at some point, you know, these are very hard questions uh, to answer, but they're very expensive uh, solutions. Yeah, and that was actually, that came up at the meeting yesterday as well. Um, and um, one of the council members, Tamara Paulson, actually, who represents West Maui, had asked the, the condo owners who testified would they be willing to move their building back at the end of this at the end of this term? And some of them were very upset by that proposal. Um, but it's it's a big thing that communities are grappling with. But at the at, at present right now, we don't have any comprehensive policy on a state or county level. So everything is done on this case by case basis. So it gets kind of messy because like one group of condo owners may do something totally different than another group of condo owners, like in the same region. I like I'm talking West Maui. So, yeah, there's a lot of lot of complexities and a lot of unanswered questions. And it's a very heated subject. And I understand that some of these condo owners don't live here, that they may use these uh, units for vacation rentals. Yes, and that was a big sticking point yesterday, too, um, that council members never got an answer to was, uh, of these condos, how many people actually live in them full-time? Um, and, and it appears that the vast majority of them are used as vacation rentals, but that was something that council members never got an answer to. So this is a start of a long and hard conversation to have. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marina. Thank you. That was reporter Marina Riker with today's reality check. Check uh, check out her story online at civilbeat.org. the next fresh air, the impact of the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority on American life. We'll speak with Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice, about critical decisions on abortion rights, gun safety, and environmental regulation. His new book is called The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, now flying direct to Fukuoka, Japan, three times per week. More information at hawaiianairlines.com.
ever wondered where your green waste goes? Well, if you live in Honolulu, the contents of your green waste uh, trash bin uh, ends up at the Hawaiian Earth Recycling Facility in Wahewa for processing. Marvin Min is Senior Vice President of its Hawaii Division. He talked with The Conversation's Stephanie Hahn about the role of composting in a circular economy. Reuse, sustainability, and the challenges of public education, all part of the greening of what we put out in the trash. Well, everything that comes from the Aina goes back into the Aina, and that's what we do, and that's what we promote. And, you know, composting, uh, green waste, and soon-to-be food waste, it's, it sounds like an easy task and, and job, but... It really takes a lot of experience and knowledge and science to to really produce the best product. You know, since our inception, um, we've diverted over 2 million tons of green waste and untreated wood pallets, trees, and logs from going either into the landfill or being incinerated at HBAR. To give you a visual perspective of how much 2 million tons is, if you take Diamond Head Crater, that would fill up Diamond Head Crater twice. And that's how much we've diverted from, from the landfills or being incinerated. So the uh, city of Honolulu actually uh, picks up the green bins from homes, uh, brings their uh, curbside greenways to us, but there's also a, a, a large community, people that, that are very environmentally um, uh, friendly that they'll drive here and drop off their green waste at one of our three sites. you, you got to take your hats off for the passion that they have for our, our, our Hawaii. 30 to 35 percent of food waste um, that is going into the, the trash that's being burnt at uh, H-Power or being disposed of in the landfill, which is, you know, causing greenhouse gases, et cetera. You know, and once, once you harm Mother Earth, you, you can never, never go back. The, the city will soon be collecting food waste along with the green waste in the year 2024, hopefully in January. The combination of that basically will, will start to see the trickle effects of um, other community members. Uh, yeah, we, we can't compost bones and, and, and animals and whatnot. It's basically pre- and post-consumer food waste. So once it touches your mouth, um, then, then you can dispose of that along with your green waste. Uh, again, instead of uh, diverting it to each bar or to the landfills, we'll be able to compost that now. And and really um, go through this process. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, technological process on, on, on the next level of composting. You know, going through the, uh, uh, what we call PFRP, is a process to further reduce pathogens. Educating and, and building the community's knowledge, I think, is going to be the key component. I mean, everybody on the mainland does this. It's an automatic for, for, for the mainlanders. But when you come to Hawaii, I mean, just trying to educate our community not to put plastic bags or trash with the green waste, that's a challenge itself. So um, I think as we, as, we, as we educate and we, we promote the proper way of recycling, um, it'll be beneficial for all. You know, the cost of fertilizer and chemicals to import to Hawaii is extremely high. And, and, and why not support local? When we have a local product here... Um, you know, again, farmers, um, they're starting to get uh, more knowledgeable about the benefits of compost. But, you know, hopefully we'll see more parks and playgrounds throughout Honolulu, including the residential community, um, start composting their yards and, and their, their playgrounds because uh, the water retention and compost uh, will help people save water. You know, we, we always hear year after year cons conserve water and and I, I know there are farmers out there that try to compost on their own. And in the end, it may create a lot more stress and, and, and humbug, per se, for someone. Because it does look easy for, for, to do, but you need a lot of equipment. It's a daily thing that you need to do with temperature testing, um, reporting, ensuring that we, we, we test to meet food safety standards.
You know, and when it comes to green waste composting, one of men's main concerns is invasive species, like the coconut rhinoceros beetle, which the State Department of Agriculture found on Kauai for the first time last week. Ensuring not to spread invasive species, because Hawaii is so vulnerable to invasive species. Here on Oahu, it's the coconut rhinoceros beetle that people have been hearing about. And we're actually one of those that are helping stop the spread of uh, the coconut rhinoceros beetle uh, because of our processing. And, and in fact, last year we got uh, this nice plaque and award uh, from the Hawaii Invasive Species Council of being the outstanding business leader of the year for help controlling the spread of invasive species through our process. Because our compost you know, will get hot to uh, 131 degrees minimum every single day. Um, then, then, then we take it to, to a, a stability and a maturation stage where we age the product for at least 12 months. So you have an aged product. When we screen it, um, it it's stable, it's mature, um, it's ready to go, and it, it works immediately. So there's a lot of people that, that are not aware of how if they were to compost it and how they can uh, need to be cognizant about the spread of invasive species. And there's a lot. There's a lot of invasive species uh, uh, killing the uh, invasive weeds and seeds. And so, so you, you got to kill all of that as well. Uh, you got to know what you're doing uh, because cause the environmental mitigations such as stormwater control and, and leachate, you know, all the juices from the food waste, what, you know, it has to be captured and, and retained on site. Um, and, and you have fire controls, uh, mitigation plans, um, the process and procedures. Everything needs to be done uh, and, and regulated to, to protect not just people, but to protect the environment. And, and the, the struggles that 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 Oahu and I think every island is is struggling with right now is 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 if they're not trying to find a home for a new landfill, they will be. And where do you put that landfill? Especially in Oahu, they're still trying to look for a, a new landfill site because you cannot build a landfill over a water an aquifer or drinking water, right? So you need to protect anything that leaches into the ground from you need to 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 contain that to mitigate leachate control and i think um you know that's why the department of health and the epa have has these certain standards and requirements of composting now in a small scale backyard composting in a, in a little drum and whatnot um that's great i mean that's something that people can control on their own without heavy equipment but once you're over a one yard or a pickup truck, uh, truck size, it's, it becomes it becomes a task, and, it, and again, it has to be done every single day. These procedures, so and recorded. You need to um, record all your data as well. So, composting and, and sustainability, producing and trying to get food on the table locally. Uh, without importing 90% of our, our food, I think that's extremely important because people are not realizing. Or, or, and, and, you know, it's, it's part of the, this growing dynamics of, of what we talk about, sustainability. We, we have the local product here. Uh, so instead of, again, importing and shipping in fertilizers and chemicals from the mainland or from foreign countries, why not use the local compost that's made here and, and generate this circular economy from the production side of food, you're going to see some dramatic changes, I think, uh, as, as we evolve throughout the years. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking to Marvin Min of Hawaiian Earth Recycling about composting's role in our island economy and future. got your backyard quiz answer now. Earlier in the hour, we reminded you of an artist who was one of the first to bring Hawaiian subject matter to an international audience. She had trained in France in the early decades of the 20th century and became fascinated with island life after visiting the islands in 1923. She settled here with her husband and her two sons and began to create a style based on bold colors and large, robust images with names like Tule Sellers and Hawaiian Ladies 
hanging holoku. Between 1930 and 1939, her works were shown at prestigious shows in New York and Chicago, helping uh, put Hawaii-based painters on the art world map. Her work is still widely shown today. Two Sisters of Old Hawaii is in the Hawaii State Art Museum's collection, and dozens of her oil paintings are on display at the Isaacs Art Center in Kamuela on Hawaii Island. You can see her influence in the works of several contemporary artists, ensuring that the legacy of Madge Tennant lives on. And our winner today, Alice Tucker of Wailai. She got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Did you know that most of the flowers that are made into lei and sold this graduation season are imported? And the lei industry is in danger of slowly disappearing as aging flower farmers find it more difficult to get the next generation interested in the business. A new project to support and preserve Hawaii's lei industry is underway. A group called Be Hawaii is behind the push. Executive Director Makana Riley sat down with the Conversations Lillian Song to talk about lei Po'ina'ole, the never-forgotten lei. The Hawaii is really about empowering the community in Hawaii. And just recently, last year, this need within Hawaii presented itself as far as us understanding that more than 90% of the lei that are sold in Hawaii are made of flowers that are imported That was pretty alarming to us, and that's not something that we have scientific data on. That's just sort of the data that we're getting from the floral shops in Chinatown. And it's been a really interesting journey for me as I start to learn more about the lei industry. I myself, I'm a hula dancer, and so I've been a lei maker my whole life, and my mom is a lei maker. My kids are lei makers, right? And so to me... It's not a problem. We make lay all the time. But as I learn about the community and the accessibility to lay, you know, someone at a floral shop shared with us that if someone doesn't do something about the lay industry soon, then lay are just going to disappear within a decade. And I thought, what? That's crazy. Then I called a good friend of mine who owns a generational floral shop also in Honolulu. And as I'm talking with him, I thought, maybe I'll just drop this and see what he says. You know, I was like, you know, I heard from somebody else that if we don't do something, that they are just going to completely disappear within a decade. And I said, what do you think about that? And he said, no, Makana, I think that's wrong. It's going to happen sooner. I give it about six years. And that just blew me away because I heard it from my friend. He's been in the business for generations. That's really scary, not just because I'm a practitioner, but because we are an integral part of our culture in Hawaii. All of us, all of us participate in the culture of lei and aloha is tied to that, right? If we are not as a community intentional about the industry, we are actually in danger of just losing it. So we were really galvanized as an organization to pursue ways to support the industry. And we figured that on the front end, that looked like getting more plants in the ground as soon as possible. The organization pursued an ANA grant, which is the Administration for Native Americans. And we have funds for the next three years to support pre-existing growers and also new growers across Hawaii. And so we're really excited to be able to do that on all islands. And when you say support growers, describe that grower for us. Sure. So it's really a range. You know, there's like medium farms that we're already in conversation with on a few islands that are already growing food and maybe not yet growing flowers or maybe even already growing flowers and could use more support. And then it also includes aunties and uncles and backyards, just small-time growers. We've really come to understand that 
you know, a hundred years ago, the bulk of the flowers for the lay industry were from people's backyards. And that's just not the case anymore. If we can encourage more people to grow lay flower plants in their yards, that impacts the industry drastically. The way that we go about support is connecting with an interested grower and having a discussion with them about what type of climate they're in, what type of soil they have, and then trying to assess what's the best plants for where they are and what is their capacity to support these plants, right? Mm -hmm. And we as an organization have brought on a lay farm specialist. His name is Christian Zuckerman. He'll be working directly with our growers over the next few years to make these decisions on the front end about what to plant and then also just checking in regularly with them to make sure everything's going okay or maybe solve some problems if they're having some pest problems. Just support them over the next few years because the turnaround on this is not going to be fast. Plants take time and they take love. It's going to be a little bit of a game of patience for all of us. Right. For many of us, when we think lay, we just think of the simple stringed lay. And like you pointed out, though, 90% of the lay flowers are imported. So we probably are thinking of like those orchids coming from Thailand. Is plumeria something that you source locally? Or what other plants would it be that are being brought in that we really could be growing ourselves? Yeah, you're right. It's the orchids that are now being imported largely. Plumeria is not something that can be imported because it's so delicate. You know, peacocky is one of those interesting ones where there are far few peacocky growers within Hawaii, but peacocky is something that can be imported and it's starting to be from Indonesia is what we're hearing. And it's a slightly different variety of peacocky and it's got a little bit of a different smell, but they are able to import it but that's just starting now. And so we're sort of hoping if we can kind of get on the front end of it and get a bunch of plants in the ground, that we can impact that specific space. Everyone loves pikake, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to get that, that hopefully it becomes more accessible locally. So with the Lei Poina Ole project, really helping connect people, connect individuals to a community, so that if this is something that really interests you or if you want to learn more about or become a part of the bigger picture, tell us how to connect with you and the project. Sure, yeah. So we're very much just getting started and we're still gathering a lot of data. So on our website, which is org, there's a little form at the bottom to fill in so that we can get gauge your interest in the project and how you want to participate. And we'll be reaching out within the next few weeks to our subset of email addresses, including everyone that fills out that form, with a short survey trying to understand and get more information about the current state of the lay industry, makers, and also buyers. You know, like what is the normal cost that you pay or what are you willing to pay? So right now we're in the information gathering period. Christian, our lay farm specialist, is getting his greenhouse built up over the summer and getting all of our starter plants going so that we can be supporting growers soon within the next few months. We all take part in this in some way. And so... I don't think anyone is like, yeah, I'm okay with just letting that go. We'll just let the weight go. In one form or another, like you buy them, you give them, you receive them. We have all been touched by lay. For the people who are living in the industry, aging out, not having the succession happening. When I go to the lay shop, like the cigar lay, they're pretty neat, but it takes a kind of a, a knowledge to know how to put those garlands together. We just take it for granted, just believing that all the lay shops will always be there, not realizing what's really happening behind the counters. And, you know, you're talking about these these more intricate lay, but it's really even as simple as plumeria or crown flower. You know, 
that there are so many people that don't even know how to make a plumeria lay and don't know that you need a, a lay needle. And that's so easy. That's the type of stuff that we could easily shift soon. You know, we could make that a skill that everyone has. Anyone can just make a plumeria lay. You know, kids, it should be something that we're doing in the schools. You know, we're inside of graduation season where we're all going to grad parties this summer and we want to bring a lay with us, right? And it should be and it can be so easy for all of us to be able to make a lay ourselves to bring to these special occasions, right? And we're we're right in the thick of it. We just had May Day, we had Mother's Day, inside of graduation season, Kamehameha Day is coming up with the lay draping. And so it's all really pertinent right now. And we're all experiencing it. I think it's all around us. And wouldn't it be so great if next year come this season, if there were that many more within our community who are capable and can just have a lay needle and make a couple of lay. That was B. Hawaii Executive Director Makano Riley and HPR's Lillian Song talking about the Lei Po Ina Ole project and sharing the message that buying locally grown and produced lei supports Hawaii farmers and helps preserve local traditions. <laughs> Well, that wraps it up for us today. We are out of time. Tomorrow, we plan to hear more from the military about the series of drills planned to make sure the public and the workers at Red Hill will be safe during the process of defueling. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or find the conversation uh, segment on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.